This podcast provides general information, not a substitute for professional medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized guidance. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome back to Psych Rounds. Today will be our second episode of our SNRI series. We will be talking about duloxetine, brand named Cymbalta. As always, we are joined by Dr. Larry Wang and Dr. Bradley Miller. All right, so let's get started. So just a refresher, duloxetine is the second SNRI that was FDA approved in the U.S., in 2004. Right now it holds approvals for major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, both in adults and children, fibromyalgia, diabetic neuropathy, and chronic musculoskeletal pain. Like venlafaxine, brand name Effexor, duloxetine, brand name Cymbalta, inhibits both the reuptake of both the serotonin transporter, CERT, and the norepinephrine transporter, NET. Compared to venlafaxine, duloxetine is more adrenergic. So, all right, Larry, I'm going to hand it over to you. Um, I know you are very excited about this episode. Uh, definitely a commonly used SNRI. Yeah, so I've seen both of you use this medication pretty extensively on both the adult and geriatric units. So, why don't we talk about dosing? Yeah, for Cymbalta... Usually, uh, one would start low. One of the primary complaints, particularly early on, is nausea. And this can usually be mitigated by a more gradual or slow titration. Reasonable starting dose tends to be around 20 milligrams a day. And you will either give this in a single or divided dose. So, target dose that you're going to be trying to reach is around 40 to 60 milligrams a day. And the FDA maximum is around 120 milligrams a day. At lower doses, the effect is largely serotonergic and the medication becomes more noradrenergic as you increase the dose. So for pain, you have to go to higher doses. And we touched at this as well in our episode on venlafaxine. Yeah, so I think this is important because in the medical hospital, right now in consults, I see a lot of patients coming in uh, on duloxetine strictly for pain, often started by their neurologist. And they're on doses around like 30 milligrams per day. So at least at a population level at this dose, this medication is basically an SSRI. There's not much noradrenergic effect. Um, and regarding what Dr. Miller said about dividing dosing, so this may lower the risk of nausea, which is great, but as this medication is an SNRI, there is potential for activation with nighttime dosing. Um, so I, if I do decide to divide the doses, I like to have the larger dose in the morning. So let's say if, if I'm starting the patient on 20 and I go up to 90 milligrams a day, I'd like to split it something like 60 milligrams in the morning and 30 at night. Uh, so why don't we switch gears and talk about some of the pharmacokinetics, such as the half-life and drug-drug interactions. Yeah, the half-life tends to be around 12 hours, so half a day. Oftentimes, that's why you'll see it as well dosed BID rather than once a day in some cases. But like fluoxetine, peroxetine, and bupropion, or Prozac, Paxil, and Wellbutrin, it is a strong inhibitor at CYP2D6. So we've talked a lot about CYP2D6 in the past episodes, and it's important to pay attention to in general. 
Um, so this medication is not only an inhibitor at the enzyme, but it's also a substrate at 2D6 and 1A2 for its metabolism. Now, as a good clinical correlate that we worked on the unit, we talked before about a case of late onset psychosis in a patient with only a history of depression and pain who was on duloxetine and low-dose amitriptyline of about 50 to 75 milligrams POHS. Her QTC went sky high, somewhere around 520 milliseconds or so, and we were afraid to use antipsychotics in this patient. So although TCAs can cause QTC prolongation, they normally don't do so to a clinically significant uh, amount at their usual dosage, but pretty much all of them go through CYP2D6. So in this case, her plasma level was likely going to be raised a lot more because of the duloxetine CYP2D6 inhibition. So in general, a heuristic is you want to keep an eye on worrying about medications going too high or being higher than what you expect for when you're utilizing a medication like this, unless you are confirming they don't get metabolized through that SIP system. Yeah, I remember that patient. Um, I think she was also having some anticholinergic symptoms. So she was having dry mouth. I believe some difficulties going to the bathroom as well. Uh, we stopped both of the medications, so the duloxetine and the amitriptyline, and we were repeating, repeatedly doing repeat EKGs. And after a week or so, I think our QTC went all the way down to 460 or so. Um, so it did seem to be related to this interaction. Uh, I think another good clinical correlate with this is using a low-dose TCA like doxepin for sleep. So with this medication, it's so specific for the H1 receptor that at really low doses, so 3, 6, or even 10 milligrams, uh, you're not really seeing any anticholinergic effects or antidepressant effects. But if you combine it with something like duloxetine, then the patient might start having dry mouth, they might you know, have some urinary retention, things like that. Um, so switching gears again, when do you guys like to use this medication? Yeah, so, you know, in my experience so far, it's something that would typically be considered second line. Um, now, maybe first line as well, too, with a caveat. I think this is a great medication when you're thinking about when can we get two birds with one stone. Um, so, you know, if you see a patient that has uh, comorbid depression, anxiety, that is struggling with pain, um, in particular neuropathic pain, it always kind of starts that reflux uh, reflex in my head where I'm like, you know, maybe we should consider an SNRI. Um, and then in particular, maybe we should consider Cymbalta. So for mild to moderate depression, it does not appear to be significantly different from SSRIs like Zoloft, Celexa, Lexapro, et cetera. But it does appear to be more effective in severe depression. Um, you know, this might be due just to its mechanism of action, just like other SNRIs where we have that CERT and NET inhibition um, and as well dopamine uh, that can be more stimulating than a theoretical standpoint for regular SSRIs. Yeah, and additionally uh, for duloxetine, um, of all the SSRIs and SNRIs, it does seem to be particularly effective for the anxiety disorders. It did carry an FDA approval, like Dr. Wang mentioned, for children age 7 and older 
for generalized anxiety disorder. And actually, until recently, I know we're in 2024 now, but one of the only other medications to grab that approval was actually escitalopram in May of 2023. Um, so there are some anxiety uh, advantages documented with with Cymbalta uh, deloxetine. So yeah. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about the benefits of this medication. So what about some of the adverse effects? Yeah, so you tend to have a lot of the ones you see with other serotonergic medications, including nausea, GI distress, risk for increased suicidality, and of course, sexual dysfunction. Now, when looking at something like blood pressure, I know we talked about this with vemafaxine, and due to its noradrenergic action, you would expect it to have blood pressure increase along the lines or even greater than vemafaxine, but when we look at the empirical data, it tends to be the opposite, actually. It, it is less than something like venlafaxine. So there is actually less of a risk in this case. Yeah, and going on about adverse effects, I recall one of our attendings actually warning us about using this medication in patients with heavy alcohol use. Now, is this true? Yeah, so this is going to be one of the takeaways for our listeners on this episode. Uh, this is something you need to keep in mind with duloxetine, brand name Cymbalta. Now, there is documented cases of hepatic failure with this medication. Now, initially, they were too rare to require routine LFT monitoring, uh, but duloxetine can be heavy on the liver. Um, in particular, when you are thinking of uh, medication management for a patient who has an alcohol use disorder, this is one you really want to put some some thought into uh, because, again, it just is heavy on the liver. Yeah, and one of the other things that you need to consider uh, when you have a patient who you're concerned about um, having uh, hepatic impairment is that there's other SNRIs that we can choose from. So we did just do an episode on a desfenlafaxine, brand name Pristique, and this is one of the SNRIs that does not have to go through that first pass metabolism with the liver. Um, so, you know, if you have a patient that, uh, you know, maybe has a comorbid alcohol use disorder, you know, there's other options than Cymbalta or Duloxetine to consider. Um, this is one of those risk factors that, that you definitely need to know about. So one shout out I also want to make is to this medication fact book for psychiatric practice. I have the fifth edition. This is by uh, Dr. Daniel Carlott, and it definitely is a great resource for anyone who's trying to learn some of the psychopharm with psychiatry. And in here, he actually did list a pretty unique fact that uh, Cymbalta deloxetine was actually approved in Europe for stress urinary incontinence. But the FDA actually refused this indication due to concerns of liver toxicity and potential suicidal ideation. Um, so, you know, nevertheless, just to reiterate, also think about that urinary retention uh, that has been reported with this medication. Cool. So now that we're on the topic of hepatic dysfunction, I want to go over something real quick. Because when we think of 
you know, deciding whether or not to adjust doses of medications or even choosing different medications in the context of liver insults, we should be looking at something called the child Q score, not necessarily AST or ALT. Um, so AS, AST, ALT, although they're known as liver function enzymes, uh, they really measure transient inflammation or irritation of the liver and not liver cirrhosis, which is what we should primarily be concerned about when deciding what medications to use or the dose of the medications. Um, so plenty of times a patient will have slightly elevated a a AST, ALT, so let's say maybe 50 or 60 and... I find that everyone starts freaking out and starts avoiding certain medications or decreasing the dose. So what is the child Pew score, guys? So the child Pew score was actually originally developed for transplantation and looking at the overall function of the liver. And it, the score utilizes functional markers of liver uh, function like albumin, bilirubin, PTINR, and the presence of enzymes. Uh, ascites or hepatic encephalopathy. And note that the transaminases are not present. AST and LAT are not involved in this. So each category receives a minimum score of one and a max of three based on its individual parameters. So you can tally the scores of each category and sum it into a total score. And based on the total score, somebody can be class A, class B, and class C in order of increasing severity. Yeah, and I just want to jump in here real quick, Brad, and talk about how this relates to choosing um, a medication and dosing a medication. So, for example, if someone is class A, there's no special considerations. If someone is class B, then maybe you want to avoid medications with a higher hepatic burden or adjust your dosing. If someone is class C, then you really, really want to use the safest medication possible for the liver and often at a reduced dose, um, sometimes even as little as a quarter of a standard dose. I also want to touch on that even in a patient with severe liver cirrhosis, let's say a child puke score of class C, there may not even be much of an elevation in the AST and ALT. So definitely keep that in mind when you're interpreting your uh, LFT studies. Yeah, absolutely. And I also want to mention that what we're talking about here applies broadly, not just to duloxetine. So one of the most common examples I see is in an alcoholic patient who has elevated AST, ALT, but sometimes only slightly. Um, and to treat this person's alcohol use disorder, the team elects to avoid naltrexone because this medication does have a higher burden on the liver in favor of something like a cambrosate, which is largely renally excreted. But unless the child pew score is higher, I don't really care too much personally. And in this situation, naltrexone is typically a better medication. So it's a lot more convenient for sure because it's dosed once a day compared to two large pills three times a day for a cambrosate. So adherence is a problem. But also naltrexone has better evidence for cutting down heavy drinking, which is what we typically see on the inpatient unit. Whereas a cambrosate, it's better for maintaining sobriety. Anyway, sorry for that detour, but I felt like this was a pretty important topic. So going back to the loxetine, what type of patient would be ideal for this medication? 
Yeah, so I think of this in sort of two prongs. One of these is going to be a patient that has failed an SSRI and you're looking to switch classes and pursue a, a second medication. The other is going to be as a first-line option in patients with depression or anxiety along with some element of chronic pain. And the second there is usually what I see this being used most frequently for. It tends to be an activating medication, so good for patients that are lower energy and hypersomnia, just like the other SNRI we talked about before. And it appears to be pretty good for anxiety. Although one downside overall in kind of summarizing is that you should be cautious prescribing this medication to anyone with suboptimal liver functioning and or heavy alcohol use with alcohol use disorder overall. It's also one of the only medications approved in children for anxiety, like what we talked about. So it's a reasonable choice in that population as well. Cool. So any last thoughts about duloxetine or Cymbalta? Yeah. One of the things, Larry, that I would like to add uh, is just, you know, we talk a lot about on this podcast of reduction in polypharmacy and deloxetine brand name Cymbalta. This is one of those medications that, you know, it's worth a shot if we have a patient with comorbid neuropathic pain. Um, it's worth at least attempting to communicate with maybe an outpatient neurologi neurologist or a PCP um, who's managing the pain uh, to see if, you know, this might be an effective medication to control the pain and the depression. But with that, you know, sometimes it doesn't always work, right? Uh, but nevertheless, if there's a chance we can give our patients to have to uh, not take as many medications, in my mind, it's it's worth a try. Uh, the only thing I would want to add or highlight again from earlier in this episode is the CYP2D6 interactions. I feel like even just in my short time as an intern, I've seen a couple occasions of the CYP2D6 inhibition causing harm for a patient or possibly raising the side effects of another medication. So it appears to be overlooked sometimes, and I would just remind listeners of that potential interaction. Great. Well, for the next episode, we're going to be finishing up the SNRIs. So we're going to be talking about milnasopran and lethal milnasopran, two medications that you don't see too often. And we'll be covering the topic of why SNRI, so medications that increase norepinephrine, help with anxiety. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to Psych Rounds. We hope you have a great rest of the week and a great rest of the weekend. We'll see you next time.